welcome to Leader Lab. Uh, I'm joined today in the Leader Lab with Dan Pink. Uh, Dan, let me let me let you do the intro. Who are you, and what do you do? I'm a guy who lives in Washington D.C. with my wife and our three children, and I sit in the home office of my uh, sit on a third floor home office and write books, mostly about business and work and technology. And of course, I actually do some research and reporting for them that takes me uh, around this country, and if I'm lucky, around the world. What a, that's such a humble uh, intro. No, no mention of being the New York Times best-selling author, author of several books. Well, I mean, fortunately, I'm lucky, David, because uh, I've, I've written four books, and um, they've done well enough that I can provide uh, winter coats for my kids. So I'm pretty happy about that. So. <laughs> fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So the new book is Drive, the Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. I um, I have actually finished it, so I'm proud to report that. But my first question to you is, what is Motivation 3.0? Well, motivation 3.0 is a form of motivation that, that in some ways takes that, that takes a three-dimensional view of human beings. So we, human beings are a mix of drives. We've got you know, our first drive. We've got a biological drive. We eat when we're hungry. We drink when we're thirsty. Okay, that's part of what it is to be human. Uh, that's not all it is to be human because we have a second drive. We respond very well to rewards and punishments in our environment. So if you reward something, you typically get more of that behavior. If you punish it, you typically get less of it. Okay, human beings are very... Uh, exquisitely attuned in many cases, not all, but in many cases, to that to that drive. Um, but we also have a third drive. Um, we do things because they're interesting. We do things because uh, we enjoy them. We do things because we get better at them. We do things because they matter. We do things because they make a contribution. And that third drive is a very, very powerful uh, human drive. And the argument of this book is that we've essentially stopped our businesses at the second drive, that we think that... Um, uh, all the only thing we need to motivate people, the only thing that will get people performing at a high level is uh, carrots and sticks. Um, and when we see them not working, instead of questioning whether we should be even using carrots and sticks as much as we do, we just you know add add some more carrots and sharpen the stick. And motivation 3.0 suggests that based on 40 years of science, that if you actually want people to do the sorts of work that most white collar workers will be doing in the 21st century, work that is less routine and algorithmic, more creative, conceptual, uh, inventive, that um, you need a, a, essentially a fundamentally different approach to motivation, that these characteristic motivators work, but only in a narrow band of circumstances. And for creative conceptual work, they just, they don't work. Uh, the science is pretty overwhelming on that. And they also often, often do harm. So motivation 3.0 suggests, let's run essentially a motivational operating system in our organizations uh, based around our third drive, that drive uh, that we might call intrinsic motivation, the drive to um, make a difference in the world, the drive to do things because they're inherently interesting. And there's a lot of science that shows that that drive is the pathway to high performance on creative and conceptual tasks, just as much as uh, carrots and sticks are the pathway to high performance on more uh, simple, routine, uh, rule-based tasks. Oh, okay. And and you said that I think it's important to note there's a lot of science and research in that book. Talk to us about some of the uh, research that you use that you cite, um, particularly like the works of uh, Desi studies and those. I, I found those fascinating. Yeah, there's a whole array. It's quite fascinating. I, I, I'm with you. I think it's quite fascinating. This is a very uh, the, the book is very much rooted in this. My book Drive is, is very much rooted in science um, because there's a body of research out there that's unfolded over the last 40 or 50 years 
that really calls into question a lot of the orthodoxies about how we run organizations. Um, and it's research that shows in many, many cases if you if people are doing something they really enjoy and then you start rewarding them for it in a kind of contingent way, in an if-then way, that they'll actually lose interest in that. There's a huge amount of research going to what we were talking about earlier that suggests that um, for uh, tasks that require kind of rudimentary cognitive skill, uh, higher rewards lead to better performance. But once you get above that, uh, higher rewards can lead to worse performance. Um, there's evidence in certain circumstances uh, that, I mean, one of my favorites is the example of the Israeli daycare center that noticed parents coming late. Uh, parents had to come and pick up their kid by four. Uh, when parents, some parents were coming late, the daycare center started fining parents, um, you know, about 7 or $8 U.S. per kid per late instance to deter the lateness. And, of course, the incidence of lateness doubled. That is, you had this punishment that was designed to deter the behavior and ended up increasing it. And, you know, what we see from this research is that human beings, we see, we see some very fundamental things that I think are interesting about just the, 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 the nature of human beings, the, the, I mean, who we are uh, in, our, in our essence. And there's a false notion out there uh, in business, uh, in other organizations, I think in school, in, in a whole different realms of life, that... Human beings are endlessly manipulable. That is, if you simply press the right levers in the right way, people will do what you direct, you know, what you're aiming to get them to do. And the science shows that's just not true. That human beings are much more complex than that, um, and um, and that if you actually take a different view, that human, if you take a very different view of human nature, uh, a view that I think is more accurate. Uh, it leads you in very, very different directions about how you run organizations. And there's some very cool examples of companies around the world doing some just zany things uh, on, on motivation that are working quite well. Well, and, and interestingly enough, that, that leads me to my next question. Um, we at Leader Lab, our, our sort of goal is to promote uh, what we call the practice of theory and, and helping leaders use actual solid research that comes out of academia or, or wherever uh, and put a spotlight on the people that are making that easy to apply. And so... The next question would be then um, talk about some of those organizational leaders and, and what advice you can give to organizational leaders to leverage all of this new research. Yeah, so, so what the science shows is that, you know, for the more complicated tasks, uh, carrots and sticks don't work, but there is something that does, which is uh, sort of an, an elixir composed of autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Autonomy meaning self-direction and uh, I think the basic human desire to direct our own lives. Uh, mastery, which is uh, the satisfaction we get from simply getting better at something, uh, and purpose, being part of something larger than ourselves. Uh, and there are a lot, uh, you know, on, on autonomy, there's some really interesting examples. I mean, one of my favorites is uh, from an, a company that most people have never heard of, a company called Atlassian, which is an Australian software company. And what they do is once a quarter on a Thursday afternoon, they say to their software developers, hey, you know, Go work on anything you want. Do it however you want. Do it with whomever you want. Do it any way you want. Just, you know, create something and show what you've created to the rest of the company at the end of those 24 hours, uh, you know, on Friday afternoon. Uh, they call them FedEx days because you have to deliver something overnight. Well, you know, it turns out it's a pretty funny name. But it turns out that these FedEx days, these basically one day of intense autonomy, has produced this whole array of fixes for existing software, a bunch of ideas for new products that had otherwise never emerged. Now, this is not how we typically motivate people in organizations. We, I mean, even I, Dave, you know, three years ago, before I looked into this stuff, 
I would have said, ooh, you need people to be more innovative. Well, we've got to incentivize them. We've got to say, hey, here's an innovation bonus. Whoever comes up with a groovy idea gets five grand. And they're not doing that. They're saying, they're not, they're saying you probably want to be creative. You probably want to do something good. Maybe I should just get out of your way. Uh, and so you see instances of this kind of autonomy in giving people seemingly radical control over their schedule. So you have things like the results-only work environment where people don't have schedules. Uh, they, they show up whenever they want. They don't have to be in the office at a certain time or any time. Uh, you see it in, I guess, more for the best-known example would be Google, off, uh, which offers its employees 20% time. Uh, 20% time. Uh, so they can spend 20% of the time working on anything that they want. Uh, and, and so you, you have um, other kinds of companies giving uh, individuals uh, on a team the, the autonomy to select other team members so that the bosses don't pick. You know, so, so when you're working on a team, you don't, inherit, you don't inherit team members. You don't have them foisted on you. You select who's on the team, uh, not the boss. You have autonomy over who you work with, autonomy over when you work, autonomy over how you work. Uh, and, there, and, and, you know, and I think that one of the things that we're discovering is that, you know, that, that management is very – this whole idea of management, and it's interesting that you use leader rather than manager. The, the whole idea of management in some sense is, is outdated. That is, management is a – you know, Gary Hamill has said this very nicely, that management is a technology. And I think that's a nice way to put it. And what we don't realize is that it's, it's a technology from the 1850s, and it's kind of run its course. It's a very good technology if you want people to comply. If you're trying to get compliance, it's a, it's a terrific technology for that. Uh, but if you want people to engage, and I, and I think that's what we want today, uh, self-direction is a better path to engagement, pure and simple. Hmm, interesting. Um, Quick question for you. My, my professional background uh, is both in the education realm and in teaching uh, business courses uh, and also in sales and marketing. Uh, mm. But I'm particularly interested in sales because it's so incentive-driven. But how do you yeah. think the research and the findings from this book apply to those two areas? Well, it's funny you, it's funny you mentioned that because I just came literally this, this morning. Uh, I spent the morning at a company in Baltimore, Maryland, or just outside of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, called System Source. It's, a, it's an IT company. Uh, it's been around for 30 years, and it's a company that has flourished for nearly three decades, uh, in part because about two decades ago, they eliminated commissions for their salespeople. Hmm. Which, yeah, exactly. It seems crazy. Um, and yet the company has flourished, um, not in spite of that, but I think because of that. Um, there's another software. You see, there's a, there's a software company in uh, the U.K., uh, called uh, that I encountered called Redgate Software, uh, called, just called Redgate. And they, too, have eliminated commissions for their salespeople and saw sales, total sales, go up. Um, and it's quite fascinating. I mean, it, it's so, this is so interesting because it defies the laws of behavioral physics in a way. You know, it's not supposed to work that way. That is, you know, it's the same as with some of these rewards. You know, you have economists out there, people like Dan Ariely and, you know, some of the top economists in, in, in North America doing experiments and research showing that many times higher rewards lead to worse performance. Okay, that's freaky in itself. Then you have sales operations that are eliminating commissions and seeing sales go up. Um, it's like everything's been turned upside down in a way. And, but it makes some sense. Uh, I'll give you an example from, uh, from, uh, from Redgate. Um, uh, 
Redgate, what happened was happening with Redgate, and it's true to some extent with System Source. Uh, they had a compensation system based on 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 uh, commissions, and of course, salespeople, understandably, I would do the same thing. Figured out ways to game that system, right? Um, so the company then increased the complexity of that compensation system, and so salespeople increased the complexity of their response in trying to game it. Uh, and you had this kind of ratcheting up over and over again. And, and what they said is that maybe we're going down a different path. Uh, maybe we're going down fundamentally the wrong path. And so they did this experiment to eliminate commissions. And lo and behold, what happened? Well, the salespeople themselves actually responded well for a whole host of reasons. First, um, uh, if, you're, if too much of your commission is tied to, if too much of your, your income is tied to commissions, uh, it can be kind of scary. And, and people who are scared uh, do desperate things. Uh, another reason from the management side is that management found themselves spending a huge amount of time policing and arbitrating the commission compensation system. Who brought in this piece of business? La, 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 la. Um, and when they eliminated that, management suddenly freed up to do much more creative things. The other thing that's very interesting is that um, customers tend to like this better because they feel like they're not being sold to. They feel like, you know, they feel like they're not getting stuck with something because uh, uh, Joe the salesman hasn't hit his numbers yet. Uh, and another thing that I think is extraordinarily important is, is, is collaboration. A lot of times these individual incentives on sales forces are an enemy of collaboration. Uh, and, and I think that often works against the customer, and I think it works against the firm itself. Uh, this is something that, um, this is something that, that, that System Source uh, saw. And so, you know, these are not the mainstream at all yet. But, um, you know, you do have people out there challenging what seems an orthodoxy that, of course, salespeople respond to commissions, and you've got to commission salespeople or else they won't sell anything. Here you have a couple of instances in two different countries of people saying, well, nah, maybe it doesn't have to work that way. Hmm. It really interesting stuff. Again, it's, it's breaking sort of or killing the sacred cows of the, of the sales organization. But and the data's there. I mean, the research is there. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's, not, it's fascinating. I think the sales side of it, I'm, I'm with you, is, 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 is totally, totally interesting. And I'll give you one little anecdote uh, that, that this, the CEO of Redgate told me, which I think is instructive. So he goes into one of his salespeople and says, hey, we're, Fred, we're thinking about eliminating commissions for salespeople uh, because the compensation system has become so complex and everyone's trying to game it and we're trying to respond and we're wasting all this time. And I'm not sure it's good for customers. So what we'll do is we're going to raise your base salary and give you a piece of the action on the back end, you know, give you some profit sharing. Uh, and Fred, you know, what do you think, Fred? And Fred says, well, you know what? I kind of like that. Um, you know, I think it would take a little bit of the pressure off. I, I feel like I could build better relationships with, with customers. Uh, I, I feel like I could collaborate more. The problem you're going to face he says to the CEO, is that Maria, you know, another salesperson, another main salesperson, uh, main sales leader, isn't going to go for it because Maria only cares about money. Yeah. So, right. So he goes to talk to Maria. Maria, we're thinking about this new compensation system, flat, higher base pay, piece of the back end, no commissions. What do you think? Uh, Maria says, wow, I think that's awesome. Um, um, I think it, it would be, you know, we'd have much greater teamwork, much greater collaboration. Uh, I think we'd be, be, we would build more kind of uh, enduring partnerships with customers rather than these deal-by-deal relationships. The problem you're going to have, though, Neil, is that Fred will never go for this because Fred only cares about money. And so, 
<laughs> so what you had was you had everybody making these false assumptions about other people. And, um, you know, I think that salespeople love the adrenaline rush of, you know, cracking open a big commission check and, you know, doing the deal. But I'm not sure that's necessarily a sustainable long-term approach. You often see people burning out in that sort of, uh, in that sort of role. And, and I'm not sure it's necessarily good for the company. That is, um, you know, you, you, you want your sales team, ideally, over the long haul, to be the, in some ways, the agent for the customer, uh, rather than, you know, the kind of the adversary who's trying to, you know, one-up them. Uh, and so I think over the over the in the short term, there's no question that commissions are a better idea. But it, you know, in the long term, I actually think that that there's some. This is a very 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 interesting uh, approach. Not necessarily for everybody, but y- there are very few, as you said. I mean, this is basically taking the pickaxe to the, one of those sacred cows. Yeah. No, I, absolutely, exactly. Well. Um... Real quick, the book, again, is Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Uh, Dan Pink, I've got one other question for you unrelated to the book. Yeah. Uh, emotionally Intelligent Signage. Yes. What is, what is that? Oh, my God, my favorite topic. Now, first of all, I should say that this is, this is, a, this is something I'm interested in and, and that I've been working on uh, purely for intrinsic uh, motivations. I, I have, I, if, if I had to quantify how much time I spent on it, um, um, I, I would well actually I know my hour, hourly rate my hourly rate would be zero because I spent a lot of time and haven't made a cent and don't want to make a cent off of this. This is basically I'm kind of obsessed with signs, uh, you know, physical signs. Uh, uh, I think they're really interesting and I think they tell us a lot about our world. But I've noticed that a lot of signs stink. And one of the things that I think that one ways I think that signs stink is that they're not emotionally intelligent. That is, they're they're very kind of Spock like. They just you know. Often tell us where to go. You know, they're all about wayfinding and rules, and they're all about, in some ways, about compliance, as we were talking about before. And I actually think that you would get more people to follow rules enunciated in signs uh, if you, um, if they were a little bit more emotionally intelligent. That is, if they demonstrated empathy for the people that they're reaching, and also encouraged empathy on the part of people they're reaching, and so. Uh, I've been getting you know, signs from readers all over the world, literally, uh, with uh, with examples of this. Uh, you know, and, and there are things like um, uh, one of my favorites was from a museum where the, you go to the museum cafeteria and the line looks really, really long, and there's a sign that that says, "Don't worry, this line moves really fast." Mm-hmm. Um, now, that, it, it's amazing because it's not about a rule; it's not about wayfinding. It just is basically saying, "Hey, I know this line looks long." Relax. It's really not that long, and it turned out to be the truth too. And the, just the presence of that sign, which was an act of empathy, saying, "I know you're probably here at this museum for a short amount of time. You don't want to spend it standing in a line in the freaking cafeteria." Um, and it empathized, and it changed the mood of the place. I mean, you could see as people entered the space, saw the sign, their mood changed from high anxiety, oh, there's a line, to uh, you know, greater relaxation. There's a sign um, near my house, uh, church on the corner, just about, about six blocks from me on 45th Street. 40, uh, yeah, yeah, 45th Street, uh, where there's a you know this big yard on this in front of this church, um, and you know typically there's things like pick up after your dog or use your pooper scooper, and this sign says um, uh, the bottom of it says. 
pick up after your dog. But at the top it says, children play here, pick up after your dog. And I actually am convinced that that sort of sign is going to get fewer dogs pooping on the lawn. Not because dogs can read, but because their owners can read. Uh, and that, and that, um, that the addition of those uh, three little words, children play here, uh, along with pick up after your dog, uh, is going to actually get you more adherence to the rule. And this is just a pet hobby horse of mine, um, my, my one-person quest to make to improve signage and make it a little bit more emotionally intelligent because I think that in a very small way it can change the, the experiences we have in uh, public spaces. Oh, awesome. Well, uh, I'm going to ask you our final question. We ask all guests, uh, what are you reading now and what's next for you? Uh, literally right now, okay, so uh, literally right now, the book I, oh boy, uh, the book I have uh, next to my bedstand, which is, maybe it offers some leadership, I don't know, uh, it's, uh, it's a book by a woman who used to be, I, I don't know if she used to be or she still is at the LA Times, she was the Asia correspondent for the LA Times for a while, and it's called Nothing to Envy, and it's about uh, day-to-day life in North Korea. Uh, that she managed to plumb by interviewing these intense interviews with people who had defected. And, you know, we don't know. I'm fascinated by North Korea, just how such a bizarre, freaky place that it is. Uh, what is day-to-day life like there? Um, and it's just remarkable. I mean, even things like, you know, you go out at nobody goes out at night because there's no electricity to power any outdoor lighting. Um, so in the wintertime, you've got, you know, th- entire country goes to sleep at seven o'clock in the evening. Uh, and she tells this great story of this young woman uh, who would secretly go out and take these long walks with a boy, you know, sort of her boyfriend. Um, but they would only, they could only see each other in the dark. And they had this very, very chaste uh, relationship that involved essentially taking long walks in the dark uh, when no one could see them because there wasn't electricity. Um, it's an extraordinary, I mean, to get inside of North Korea is just a fascinating, fascinating tale. Wow. I don't know what the, I don't know what the leadership lessons are. You know, uh, don't be an insane strongman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> give your people power at night. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. You know, uh, and and she actually, you you might have seen this online. She actually has a photograph in there of a, um, I guess it's a satellite photograph of uh, a portion that portion of of um, uh, Asia at night. And you see South Korea very lit up, and then you can see a little bit of Japan over there to the east, uh, also a, a little bit. You know, you can see you can see Japan, you know, lit up, and then you see this this patch that is completely dark, and that's the country of North Korea. You know, I think I have seen that picture. Yeah, it's 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 just it's so striking, and and it's so amazing to hear the stories of the people who actually had to who actually had to live there. And what's, 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 what's curious about it is that uh, this one, the young woman who I was meant, she's not, I mean, she's in her thirties now, the young, the woman who had eventually had defected, uh, you know, sneaked into North South Korea. She um, describes being a kid and, and essentially remember these, 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 people, these folks aren't like, don't have the internet. There aren't, there isn't that there's one channel on, on the television. There's one newspaper. Um, and so these folks actually, as kids especially, don't know that it's different anywhere else. Hmm. Anyway, it's a fascinating book. Interesting thought, yeah. 
Well, Daniel Pink, the book is uh, Drive the Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. He's on a mission to change the way we motivate our followers uh, and also make our signs uh, more emotionally intelligent. <laughs> uh, Dan, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me. You know what? I, you know what? I'm, I wonder if I could I could combine the two and go to North Korea. I, I have a feeling North Korea does not have a lot of emotionally intelligent signage. No, uh, I bet they don't. Uh, well, the people can't read them at night anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's not very emotionally intelligent if people can't see the signs. In any but, event, uh, uh, you can find me online at danpink.com, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com. And for you uh, Mac heads, I believe there's also an iPhone app out there. Uh, yes, there is. You can go to your iTunes and, and uh, download the Daniel Pink app, and amazingly, it's free. Wow. Amazing. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us in the Leader Lab. And if you want to check out more on Leader Lab, you can find us at theleaderlab.org. Dan, thanks so much. David, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.